Welcome to Central Line, Leadership in Healthcare, the show that shares stories, experiences, and advice from notable and innovative leaders in healthcare. Let's get started with your host, Leah Witchick. Julia Hanningsberg is president and CEO of Holland Blurview Kids Rehabilitation Hospital, Canada's largest pediatric rehabilitation hospital and an academic health science centre fully affiliated with the University of Toronto. Holland Blurview is a top 40 Canadian research hospital and the highest ranked research hospital for research intensity with a budget of under $400 million. Julia has spent her career in government, post-secondary education and healthcare as a champion for cultural transformation, innovation, excellence, and social justice. She is a two-time Women's Executive Network Most Powerful Women Top 100 honoree. Julia has degrees from McGill and Columbia Universities. She has held Social Sciences and Humanitarian Research Council of Canada and Fulbright Fellowships. Julia serves on numerous volunteer boards, including as Chair of the Council of Academic Hospitals of Ontario and on the boards of Children's Healthcare Canada, Kids Brain Health Network, and the Solutions for Kids in Pain Network. In addition, she serves on the CEO Committee of the Toronto Academic Health Science Network, the Executive Advisory Board of First Robotics Canada, and the First Robotics Girls in STEM Advisory Group. Good morning, Julia. How are you today? I am great. How are you? It's so nice to be on with you. Oh, well, thanks for being here. I've been really looking forward to our conversation. And so I am really interested in hearing all of the things that you have to say. So thank you for for making the time to be here. I was thinking to get us rolling. um, If you would care to share a little bit about your journey into leadership and into healthcare, because I know it's one that's maybe somewhat um, different than a lot of the more uh, common journeys into healthcare leadership. Would you be okay sharing that? Yeah, for sure. And, and it's true. I, I definitely do not have the traditional path of, um, of the, the typical hospital CEO. So as you know, I'm, I'm the CEO here at Holland Blurview Kids Rehabilitation Hospital in Toronto. And, and we're a specialty, specialty children's hospital, a post-acute care hospital where we care for children with uh, complex uh, medical needs and disabilities and, and chronic conditions. And um, so the, um, the work that Holland Blurview does as an organization, the mission, the values, uh, the connection to people, uh, those are the things that really connect me into this into this organization. But to to answer your question more directly, I actually started out as a lawyer. My training is legal training, and uh, I spent uh, about the first third of my career, almost ten years, with the provincial government in Ontario, doing various kinds of public policy jobs, including in the context of uh, family law legislation and policy, uh, same sex rights legislation. Uh, had a great run um, with the provincial government. And then my next step was in post-secondary. And it was an exciting time in our province. There was a a great deal of investment in post-secondary education and there was new leadership. And I went to Ryerson University where I spent almost 10 years and started out as as general counsel and and secretary of the board. So really involved in the 
again, the legal side of the, the, the organization and governance, but more really relevantly, I worked for an incredible leader, uh, Sheldon Levy, who was the president at the time, and he wasn't someone who kept you in the box of the org chart where your name appears. He was someone who really uh, looked at um, who the individuals were who were on his team, and he just threw you at problems. And so I got amazing opportunities at Ryerson to be engaged and involved with some really exciting uh, strategy that that university was involved with at that time. Uh, city building, redeveloping our um, our stretch of downtown Toronto, uh, just really, really exciting things. And, and then I became the vice president of administration and finance there at Ryerson, and so had a great big operational portfolio, um, really soup to nuts, everything from major capital development, where we had half a billion dollars under development, uh, to uh, facilities and security and human resources and finance and, and kind of the nuts and bolts of the organization. And, and that was just an, an amazing, amazing opportunity. And also, you know, working in a university was so much fun because it's such an incredible intellectual community. So the scientists, the researchers, the students, um, that's actually where I got into social media because I wanted to connect to students. So I, I needed to be where they were. Um, and then uh, and then Holland Bloorview kind of uh, beckoned. And like I said there, you know, I'd say that the thread that really connects Holland Bloorview to the rest is, is twofold. One is... We, uh, we are an academic health science center, so we're a research hospital, teaching hospital, fully affiliated with the University of Toronto, so we have a research institute, the development of new knowledge, the teaching mission, um, all very much at the heart of what we are. And uh, the other part of the connection is to uh, really looking to advance the ability for children and families to create their best possible futures. And uh, both of those things uh, really, really appealed to me. And so um, I found myself here at Holland Bloorview almost six years ago, and it has been uh, an incredible, incredible honor, but it's also been an incredible challenge, even more than I knew uh, a leap that it would be. So long answer to a short question. Uh, it's been a pretty long journey to get here, but it's been um, a pretty amazing destination over the past uh, close to six years. What a, a journey and, and so unique and, and really fascinating um, along the way. And it sounds like that a couple of points in your story, you kind of made these fairly dramatic shifts. Uh, and I, I'm referencing when you shifted into Ryerson and then shifted into where you are now. And what strikes me is it sounds like it's really for you about the energy of the place that you're at. Um, you know, the work that you do right now, uh, the, the site that you're at is so vibrant with all this research and all the work that's happening. Um, and I heard the, the same from Ryerson as well. And I'm wondering um, what really drew you to the role that you're in now? Yeah, I think those are really, those are great insights. And I, I think it's true. I think the, the energy, the mission, the team, um, those really make a big difference to me. 
um, I, you know, I've, I've come to know about myself uh, more over time as we all do. And one thing I, I have realized, <clears throat> excuse me, is that I'm, I'm a curious person. I'm a person who is, likes to be stimulated and like to learn new things. And so these transitions into these different sectors are actually um, things that really energize me a lot. Um, so Holland Bloorview, you know, what, <clears throat> excuse me, what draws me to a place like this? Um, first of all, it's a connection to children. Yeah. Um, I'm a mom of three. I'm a mom of an adult, a young woman now with a developmental disability and autism, uh, who was, uh, born, uh, very premature. So we had lots of, um, back in the day, contact with both the healthcare system and, and developmental services. I'm also a, a woman who has experienced uh, pregnancy loss and early um, early infancy loss, and uh, just uh, uh, you know we're. You know, I think we're in a time when uh, finally uh, we are creating more space to talk about things like that than mm -hmm. uh, than I certainly experienced twenty almost twenty five years ago now when that was my experience. So I think you know when I talk about this this place, Holland Bloorview, and some of the things that really um, connect me personally, you know, I've come to realize as I talk to more and more people who work in healthcare that there's very frequently a personal kernel. There's a story in their background. There's a, a mom who was a nurse, or there was an early childhood experience, or there was some connection into uh, intellectual connection um, that draws people into healthcare. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, um, it, it's, you know, like you, I'm always fascinated by those stories because they so frequently are, um, you know, really are, are a window and an insight into that that person and, and what motivates them. Hmm. You know, that's so interesting you mentioned that, because uh, as you're speaking, I was thinking about my own story. And my mom is a nurse. And uh, so I was able to witness her experience as a nurse. Um, she did a lot of public health nursing and moved into administration and, and executive roles. And it just seemed like a natural place for me as well to to move into to nursing so that's so interesting that you're seeing very similar experiences with a lot of people who are in healthcare. Um, and as you mentioned uh, some of your own personal experiences that you have had within healthcare. Um, I do want to just uh, acknowledge uh, what you were saying about the challenges you had earlier on with your daughter and also the losses that you experienced and just my condolences for that. Well, I think it's, you know, it's so amazing that things that we used to not speak about, and I was going to say historically, but I'm not a hundred years old, right? I, I'm talking about things yeah. <laughs> 25 years ago, right? I mean, it's a long time granted, but um, I really do see a change. I see um, an openness. I see um, a power in the voices of younger women where they're not prepared to to hide experiences they're having. Um, I think social media is a big part of that. We have these windows mm -hmm. into people's lives. Um, Christy Teigen recently shared her pregnancy loss um, in a really public way. And I think um, I really admire that. And I really welcome um, the, the ability for women to share in these experiences because 
you know, there's so many of these things, you know, I'm at my, all my children are IVF children, for example, that wasn't something we talked about either back in the day. Um, it was always something we talked to the kids about, but you know, it wasn't something that people talked about really. And so I think, um, you know, we just have, we've entered an era of greater transparency, sometimes for the worst, but really sometimes for the best. And I think it allows more people to realize in their own lives and experiences, they're not alone. And yeah. I think that's really a good thing. And, and you know, I see that in the, the families of the children that we serve here at Holland Review. We have a, an amazing family leadership program um, well over 150 family leaders. And, and I, you know, I, I see them at family advisory council and family leader town halls, and uh, which of course are all virtual now. And, and it is just incredible that, that families who have uh, complex lives with their children, who have multiple needs, have a way to connect with each other that um, I think, you know, it just didn't exist. Uh, you know, it didn't exist in a different era. And I think, you know, we we really are the better for that. You know, I appreciate hearing about that work that's being done at Holland Hull, Bloorview. Uh, my previous podcast guest uh, shared uh, some personal experience is that she had with her daughter earlier on in um, her journey. And to your point, there was not a lot of support uh, for parents that were going through really challenging experiences with their children that had, you know, various uh, conditions or diseases or, or whatever the case may be. And so um, she's now become a, a great advocate and champion for patient family caregiver advocacy and partnership. So that's really amazing to hear uh, that that work is being done um, at Holland Bloorview. And I'm curious, how did that come about? So, you know, in this, I really stand on the, the shoulders of giants. Um, Holland Bloorview, I'd say for the past, I'm going to say 15 years, has really devoted itself to advancing the idea of putting the child and the family at the center of care, you know, what we, we call client family integrated care in our hospital. And uh, my predecessor, uh, Sheila Jarvis, was a huge champion of this work and was very wise in that she recognized that you couldn't just pay lip service. You would have to build the, the foundations. You would have to build the structures and the scaffolding. You'd have to put budget to it. You'd have to hire people. You know, to make something real, you have to really make those investments in, in human capital and in, and in money and so and in time and in executive leadership. And so I, I think the... Uh, sometimes people look at what we do with some degree of envy and we, we, you know, my team goes off and talks to organizations around the world about how we do what we do in terms of, of, of client and, and family, child and family and youth partnership. But it's not something you do with a magic wand. It really is, um, you know, it is uh, hard work, um, investment, and it really is philosophically embracing that you will be better for this work, for partnering with families. And that's what I really admire when I see the work that my team does. It's not that they um, partner with families because it's you know, the right thing to do, you know, put in italics, 
um, or it's the popular thing to do. They do it because they know that by bringing the voices of parents, children, and youth into the work, whatever that work is, will actually make better decisions. It's totally self-interested when you think about it that way. It's an investment in becoming a better hospital. And so it is, um, it is like so many other things we do. It's like the investment we make into quality and, and safety and you know, all of those things that, that we don't hesitate to invest in in healthcare. You know, we see uh, family partnership in exactly the same way. It makes us better, it makes us safer, um, it makes it increases satisfaction of children and families uh, with our care, and and so um, you know we're we think um, have have really because of that investment we now have a deep well of of family partnership, and and I'll just give you a, a particular example. Over the course of the the pandemic, um, of course, like everybody else, we had to really pivot so much, and we were making. Um, an extraordinary number of decisions at a pace that was unbelievable, right? We all know this. Back in the March, April, May period, um, you know, we were operating at what I started to call at the time the speed of COVID. I started to realize, wow, we are making all these decisions, but where are the families in it? You know, in the normal course of things, we would be having consultations and focus groups and we'd be partnering and mapping and all of these things. And in the speed, we were starting to lose something that is deeply who we are. And so quickly, uh, we recognized that. We reached out to our, our families and we d- very quickly put together a group of rapid response family leaders. And these were people who, with all the complications of their lives, right? These are people who have kids, who, you know, whose schools are closed, who are not able to get the services they need, all of that with all the complications in their lives. They said, yes, we understand the pace and the stress you are operating, operating under Holland Blurview. We'll commit to turnaround feedback in two hours. Oh, wow. And so we had a group of people. Now, not everything was at that speed. Sometimes it was 24, sometimes it was 48. But we had a group of people who came together to say, yes, it is important enough to partner with you. And we know that you value our partnership. It's not just performative. It's real that we will work with you. And I can't even tell you what a relief it was to our whole team, our pandemic steering committee, our entire structure for that work. because we weren't on our own. We were taking in the directives from the government, but we were also testing them with our clients and families. If we make this change, what are the implications going to be? Hey, this is what we're going to be saying in our next inpatient family letter. Can you read this for us? And, and does it actually make sense to you? It was so incredibly valuable. So it's just an example of what I'm, I'm talking about, which is, um, you know, when you deeply partner with, uh, with in, in our case, uh, parents, youth, children, uh, you benefit it, you benefit from it so much. It's, it's not something you're doing out of, um, you know, altruism. It is really making the organization better at doing what it does. That's a remarkable commitment that I heard on, on the part of these families, because as you said, they had so much on their plate and they recognized the value that the critical value, I would say that they can bring to the table and how that then supports you in your work. Absolutely. And just on that point, we actually had another hospital reach out to us to seek family guidance um, because they also wanted the family voice, but they they didn't have the ability to do that kind of rapid turnaround. So 
it is, it's another example of how you need to build the foundations. You can't just call on people when it's convenient to you. You need to have those foundations. And, and you know, when we, we provided advice to the Ministry of Education here in Ontario around back to school for children with disabilities and, and medical complexity, and we pulled together a Zoom call with the Deputy Minister of Education and one of her assistant deputy ministers and some other staff from the ministry. And we had, you know, we had a physician on, I was on, we had a scientist on, we had a number of different people, but we had more family leaders than anybody else from Holland Bloomview. And I know that also made a big impact on our, on our uh, public policymaker friends in government that we weren't just speaking from a healthcare provider perspective, but we really had present with us the voices of families. That's truly remarkable, and and I commend all all of your staff that have worked to create that that foundation. And I also commend all of the parents and children and youth that have uh, partnered with you on this to make this happen. So as we speak about COVID, um, I mean, COVID is front of mind for everyone. So I'm curious to know, what have you seen shift in terms of your priorities as a leader during COVID? Uh, well, that's a great question. Um, you know, COVID, the great educator. Um, we should all get <laughs> special degrees that we can frame and put on our walls for what we've learned during COVID. Um, I love that. <laughs> I think we all deserve it, right? Um, yeah. I would say the number one thing is how important it is to be connected. Um, and what I mean by that is that the need to be in close communication, close engagement uh, with our teams as leaders. Um, in our case, with our family advisors, uh, but to really be deeply engaged is more important than ever. As a, you know, as a leader, I've always, you know, communication has been a top, top priority of mine always. Mm -hmm. um, but under these circumstances, I have um, really valued being even closer than ever before. So whether that's um, rounding so that I'm talking to uh, staff who are, you know, in the building, who are, you know, at the point of care, our frontline managers, um, screeners, you know, it, environmental services folks, um, trying to get the, the pulse of how people are experiencing the day to day. Um, that was incredibly, it's incredibly important now, is incredibly important in the, what we call the reactive phase, May, uh, March, April, May. Um, you know, I had the experience of, of having people in tears in the hallways talking to me and that was necessary. It was necessary for me to hear directly what people were experiencing, both um, in terms of that, the pressures within our walls, but more importantly, the pressures outside of our walls on, on their own, on their lives. Um, I do uh, weekly wrap up emails where I just kind of summarize what's gone on the week, make some comments about the, the outside world. They've, they've actually become almost a second blog. I have a blog, you know, that I post to, but my weekly emails that I, I uh, send to all staff and it's, you know, it's everything from, you know, what are some of the tough decisions we've had to make to here's what I'm reading. This is what I've streamed on Netflix. I was talking to, you know, Dr. So-and-so, and this is what she's watching. 
you know, it's, it's all of that stuff, acknowledging some of the challenges that I've faced personally in my own home and in my own life with, you know, in the context of COVID. So those connections are really important. And then we've started doing, and, and we've, we just had our 14th one yesterday, bi-weekly town halls. We do them over Zoom webinar. Uh, people can watch them live, put questions in the Q&A so we can answer uh, live. People can also watch them recorded and then send questions after the fact. People can ask for uh, different participants to join me. All those connections of trying to really understand how my team is experiencing COVID, experiencing what we're asking of them, what I'm asking of them, um, all of those things have been more important than ever. So, so, you know, that's really number one. And then of course, you know, as an organization, we've had to learn so much and pivot so much like, like many others. Mm -hmm. What's been the toughest lesson during COVID? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I think perhaps the toughest thing has been um, as hard as, as, as any one of us or as all of us together may try, um, we're going to get it wrong a lot of the time. Um, you know, one of the things I started saying in that, you know, the late spring was, um, you know, imperfection is the new perfection. Uh, let's bathe in our imperfection. Uh, you know, we came start talking about all these different little phrases, catchphrases, you know, yeah. uh, solid B is the new perfect mark. Like we just <laughs> had to let ourselves off the hook um, because the pace of decisions was so rapid. The decision fatigue was so profound. We in healthcare in general, across the board, we, we hold ourselves to very high standards. These are, you know, as you know, healthcare providers, we are people who by definition know that the stakes are very high in what we do for a living. And we, we come to our work in a very mission-driven way. We are not, not willing to uh, compromise. And this was a circumstance where we just couldn't get it. We couldn't be perfect. There was just no way. And so, I think, you know, we're a hospital who got 100% on our last two accreditation surveys. We don't do well not doing well. And, and so I think one of the, the important things that I kept having to say to myself, to my, um, my senior management team, to our broader leadership, and to our, our frontline point of care, our full team, was, hey, we're not going to be perfect. I'm going to make mistakes. The best I can do is say, I'm going to try my best all the time. I'm going to answer every question to the best of my ability. I'm always going to be available to you, as will all the rest of us. And when we make a mistake and you tell us, we're going to change it. And we did that many, many, many times. And, um, and I think that, it, honestly, I, I think it's, it's a bit of a turning point. You know, I think it creates um, that, that admission. Um, it, it's such a relief in some ways. And it also allows us to really be a team in even fuller ways than we possibly could have before. Um, that, you know, if, if I think I've gotten it right and I am rounding and a, and a nurse in our, you know, in our brain injury uh, unit tells me, hey, you know, this is the policy, but let me tell you how it's impacting me and the way I'm able to provide care. And let me tell you how it impacts my life. Um, or I, you know, 
talk to a respiratory therapist who works at another hospital and, and, and she's struggling with how does that, how do our policies affect how she balances her, her different work responsibilities. And I hear that directly. I think we all understand each other better. And then, like I said before, in another context, it comes back to, we make better decisions and, um, and, and we really make decisions as a, as a full team. There is that perspective, of course, that uh, stress and very trying times are the best opportunities for bringing teams together and developing that that trust and developing those relationships and and deepening all of those pieces so that the work can get done despite the challenging situations that you are experiencing. And that's what I hear in what you're saying is that, of course, no one wants to be in the situation of COVID. And at the same time, there is opportunity within it to do things maybe a little bit differently, um, to be thoughtful, to be deliberate um, and very conscientious about the decisions that are being made. Of course, that happens all the time, but this is an opportunity to maybe take it to the next level. Yeah, you know, you're really right. And, and I've heard that from many other hospital CEOs. They feel that they've never been closer to their teams. You know, I, I run a small hospital. I've got a team of about a thousand people. I know CEOs who have 10 times the number of staff that I do, and they're saying they've never felt so close to their teams. And, and it is really true that um, this experience we're living collectively in our in our global community has um, has impacted us in in really unexpected ways. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and in, in some ways, I feel like it's ripped a bandaid off our um, collective psyche. And in, in some ways, it has made us less tolerant of things that we would have tolerated in the past whether it's just you know some of the silos that exist within our organization kind of the really basic businessy type things that have driven us crazy for years that we're like well i don't do that anymore because bang you know this is what we need to do now um you know things that that stopped us from being able to deliver as much virtual care as we would have liked well man did we find ways to surmount those barriers quickly that we thought were such big barriers before but also you know really deeper things like the Black Lives Movement, which is not, you know, COVID, this year is not the first year of Black Lives Matter. This isn't the first year that um, police have murdered Black people. Um, There are many names, many deaths, but there's something about the context of COVID. I think that has, we are so exposed, we're so raw that we've been able to take in information in different ways. And um, I feel that myself and, and, you know, and, and as I look around, I see that and, and that's an important, um, it's an important opportunity that we've been provided that we don't want to lose sight of as we, as we all want to get past COVID and we always all look forward to vaccines and hopefully the spring and getting, getting into a, a new time. But we also don't want to lose the things that we have paid attention to in different ways at this time. I think that's really well said. And I appreciate that you brought forward uh, the com- comments around Black Lives Matter. And so I know that 
discussion and action around diversity and inclusion seem to be front of mind for you, as it is for many people. But I'm curious for you, what's driving that? So, you know, I'll, I'll say in a personal way that um, I've been, I've always thought of myself who, uh, as someone who is very committed to equity, diversity, and inclusion. It's been an important part of work I've done at previous stages in my career. At Ryerson, we did incredible work um, and really made incredible changes that are, that are paying off very much to this day there at that university. In my personal life, it was always something I was very committed to and um, felt knowledgeable about. And it was interesting, you know, in our, our last strategic plan here at Holland Blue Review, so that was 2017, we lead and model social change as one of our, our pieces of our plan. And, and we have been uh, really advancing uh, disability representation and, and social justice for people with disabilities with things like our Dear Everybody campaign. So we talked about all these things long at Holland Blurview, like at, at most organizations, there have been an equity, diversity, and inclusion committee. But earlier this year in May, when George Floyd was murdered, and I referenced it in my weekly Friday email, and then our executive lead for equity, diversity, and inclusion, Aminu um, Sikand, who'd been with us, uh, but I guess about a year and a half, We'd invested in her role as, as an executive role at Home Blurview, and, and she brought together a group of BIPOC staff, of Black and pre presumably um, Black staff and, and uh, people of color, and they um, allowed me to be present for their discussion. And there are probably about 20 people, maybe on the Zoom, maybe 10 or 12 of whom spoke. And they shared, and they were people who had been a staff of Holland Blurby for months, up to people who'd been staff for decades. And they spoke of systemic racism throughout the healthcare system. They spoke of experiences of racism they had um, had at Holland Blurview um, in their lives that they had witnessed among our clients. And it was a devastatingly impactful. Uh, discussion for me. And the personal response I had was, okay, I've been the CEO of this place for almost six years. This is not somebody else's problem. This is my problem. And much in the way that we say in advancing our work to impact the lives of children with disabilities, we can't just be satisfied with what we do within the walls of Holland Blurview. We have to take our work outside our walls and advanced social justice for people with disabilities in the world, because our kids need to be in the world. Mm -hmm. I had to think about the experiences of, of BIPOC staff and clients and children and families and say, we need to change um, the way the healthcare system operates, and we need to be different here at Holland Bloorview. Um, it was a, a real reality check. And it gave me the specific examples, the specific life experiences, the detail to be able to, to go into a senior management team meeting and say, I am 100% convinced that we have a problem. I am 100% convinced that we need to make change. This is urgent. Um, we owe it to our team and we're gonna need to, to build their confidence and faith in us because they don't trust that we're gonna make this change. 
they've been living it, with it for too long and we're going to have to do what it takes. And it's been, you know, a series of, a series of both difficult discussions since then, um, but important discussions. And I am incredibly grateful for members of our, of our team who have stepped forward to help in the leadership of this work. Um, I've got to tell you, they also are really clear with me and people are very brave and clear. And they say, you know what, uh, you know, I get it, Julia, I get it, get your intentions, but I'm going to believe it when I see it. And they're right. And they've also said they're impatient. Like, okay, Julia, so we had this discussion back in the summer. All right, we're past Thanksgiving. What's changed? Um, and I am so grateful for that courage of not letting us off the hook. And so um, I feel a, a kind of energy around this issue that um, I am uh, absolutely determined not to let wane. Um, and to make sure we as an organization not only uh, do our part in, in systems of systemic racism in healthcare and in, in developmental and child services, but also do what we need to do within our own organization to, to really radically transform the experience that, that BIPOC individuals have as members of our team, um, as clients who, who receive our services, and just as importantly, as the people who do not receive our services because they're excluded from the healthcare system uh, for reasons that are about um, about racism and, and systemic oppression. You mentioned about how um, courageous individuals have been in uh, not only sharing their stories and their experiences, and, uh, but also, um, I'll say, uh, call, calling it out and, and holding everyone accountable for that that change for those shifts and um, making them happen in a timely fashion. And I think the word courage is really apt in this situ uh, in this situation, because as you said, this is um, systemic. This is something that we need to be addressing, not only within our own, our own homes, our own organizations, uh, within our own communities, but broader as well. And so recognizing that this is something that is, uh, again, um, a priority for you in your own organization, I'm wondering what is your perspective on where healthcare as a whole is at regarding having some of these conversations? So I think similarly, um, there is, uh, you know, we've, there's a, a kind of overall awareness that it has built. Um, one of the things that I'm really uh, grateful for is that the Toronto Academic Health Science Network, so that's the University of Toronto uh, Faculty of Medicine and then the affiliated hospitals, has come together to make uh, anti-racism and anti-oppression our top uh, system priority this year. And uh, it won't just be this year, but we've identified it as our top priority. Uh, so recently, um, you know, we've, we're developing tools together. We're developing sets of data together. We are developing education together. We're sharing um, what we've done that's worked and what we're finding that's challenging together. And I think that's really important um, because, you know, those, rep those hospitals represent uh, the uh, some of the biggest hospitals uh, they represent certainly the biggest hospitals in Toronto they represent the hospitals that are doing research and advancing knowledge and teaching our next generation of healthcare providers that's such an important part right we know that one of the um, single greatest um, uh, 
things that impacts the health and wellness of healthcare providers and our students and trainees is racism, is walking into the clinic room and having uh, a patient say, hey, you know, where's the doctor to the woman wearing the hijab, the resident wearing the hijab? Um, or I don't, I'd like to see somebody else. Um, so we, we have to, we have recognized that um, the racism that exists within our system, within our society, is directly impacting um, the next generation of, of healthcare providers, and we need to intervene now. So uh, I think that's really important. I think there is um, much greater awareness. We also see it here. I mean, I'm, I'm being very local, but in, the, in, in terms of the context of Ontario, Ontario Health has identified this as a key um, as a key priority. So, you know, developing standards for discussion. Um, you know, we've, as, as healthcare organizations, we are subject to lots of accountability. Um, and so there are tools that our governments and our, our funders can create to hold us accountable um, around approaches we take. Um, that's really important. So, you know, I think these are all things that are going to be uh, really meaningful and uh, and that uh, the system will help us with. But it's gonna take a lot of work and it, we've gotta make sure it doesn't feel like the, you know, sort of the, the flavor of the moment. We've gotta make sure that we continue to advance this work collectively and hold our, our system partners to account. It really comes down to that action. And so what I'm wondering is from your, your experience, what do we need to do to then shift our perspective so that action and change is the outcome versus uh, just doing lip service to this issue. Yeah, you're, you're so right. And um, there is a lot of performative anti-racism out there. And I think the patience for that is over. Um, yeah. So yeah, it is really about action. Um, it is about uh, creating diversity uh, within our teams at all levels. Um, it's about understanding the demographics of those we serve and those we don't serve. So a, a simple example I'll offer is, is our team has developed a tool that in um, looking at triaging clients and, um, uh, and working through our wait lists that have become very long during COVID, that uh, there's a tool that examines various elements of the social determinants of health, various things that can create to, uh, can, can contribute to family vulnerability. And they're using that tool for triage purposes. I think that's a really important example. Um, you know, one of the things is we have to make space. Um, it's a really difficult conversation to have, and it's, a, it's a, an uncomfortable one. But, you know, they're, they're, there's limited money, there's limited uh, positions. Uh, we need to, those people who look like me, often need to get out of the way. Um, you know, so if I'm asked to participate on a panel at a conference, the first question I have to ask is, who are the other panelists? And if the other panelists look like me, the best thing I can do is say, hey, let me suggest three other people um, who can contribute in different ways to your panel. Um, you know, those of us who are, have that privilege need to make space. And I think in general, we're bad at doing that, not because we're bad people, but because we, it's hard to recognize one's own privilege. Um, and, and 
you know, I, I had a great conversation with my kids um, the other day about this. And, and I find, you know, one of the really important things we can do is talk a lot and talk to people who are different than ourselves. Because by talking to people who are different than ourselves, we will learn a lot. And, you know, my kids are very, um, and these are 20 year old, you know, kids who are 20 years old, they are very aware of their own privilege. But they also, you know, said something to me that really impacted me. They said, you know, just because someone is privileged doesn't mean they don't work really hard. And it was a, it was a great conversation because we were talking about um, how do you talk to other people about anti-racism? How do you talk to people about systemic racism? And they were basically giving me feedback that some of the things I was saying do not work. You know, they do not convince people. And so I think part of that recognition is I can both recognize my own privilege, also recognize that as a woman, there are barriers that I continue to try to surmount, and also recognize that I need to get out of the way and make space for uh, Indigenous people, um, Black people, other people, uh, BIPOC, you know, the, the BIPOC group in general, um, people with different life experiences than I have to create bigger and different conversations and to make organizational change. And a lot, as long as those of us who um, have more privilege continue to hold on to our positions, our roles, and don't push the organizations that we're part of, um, there won't be enough space because the universe isn't, you know, the universe may be infinitely expanding, but our organizations aren't. So, I mean, those are just thoughts. I'm, I've got to tell you, I'm so much on my learning journey. I'm by no means an expert. And every day I try to, I read things. I try to learn from other people. I listen to voices that are very different from my own. And I try to listen really hard to people who are, are saying things that are hard for me to hear. Um, because I realized that, you know, there's a lot that I don't know. And, um, and the only way I'm going to be able to, to make a difference is to really try to understand voices that, um, that have much more insight than, than my whole life I'll ever be able to have. I love all of that. And I love what you're saying about one of the first steps we can take is listening to those voices. And so just in closing then, Julia, I'm wondering what would be maybe uh, a word of wisdom to those who are maybe just early on in their journey in recognizing their own privilege and, and how that impacts the way they operate in this world and what they need to do to shift that. So it's a really, you know, it's an easy, it sounds like an easy question. That's a super hard question. Um, yeah. I'll give you one word, uh, and the word is learn. Um, I think to really open, open ourselves up, um, read a lot, listen a lot. We're so fortunate now. We have so much access to information. Um, there are people you can follow on any social channel you're on. I follow some amazing people on Instagram. Um, I listen to incredible podcasts. I've started to really, in my fiction, read um, lots of Black and Indigenous authors, and it's a, a steeping in um, culture and experience that I, I can't get in my real life because of the, the limitations of my own experiences. I would just say, really open yourself, yourself up to learn. Really, you know, become a child again. Assume you know nothing. Um, and with vulnerability and uh, openness, uh, teach yourself. 
and don't expect other people to teach you. Um, our our BIPOC friends, our BIPOC staff on our teams, they are really tired of having to be the teachers and the doers, and they need us to work hard on ourselves. They're, they're done working on us. Um, as generous as they are, they, are it, they have given so much. So go out and find those resources. Um, they're really out there. And, um, and I think that's the starting point for everyone. Thank you so much, Julia, for sharing all of those thoughts and those pieces of, of wisdom and suggestions for how to move forward with this. I really appreciate you being here. Um, it's been a lovely conversation. And so thank you so much for being willing to uh, share so freely of yourself. Well, thank you so much. And, and you know, to your listeners, to you and, and your loved ones, um, please stay safe. We're still in the deeply in the midst of this pandemic. Um, everyone, please do your parts by wearing your masks and washing your hands and watching that distance. And, and we can do it. This is really a time when we need to come together. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Julia. Thanks so much for joining us today at Central Line Leadership in Healthcare. Also, if you like what you heard, please head on over to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review. Be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. We'd love to get to know you on social media, so check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram.